listener production. Hello, it's Sarah. I wanted to let you know about my three new meditations I have made especially for you. If you follow the podcast, you'll know that meditation has been a big part of my life for a long time, so a lot of care has been taken in making these meditations extremely powerful. I've created a 20-minute manifestation meditation to allow you to bring your dreams into reality. Then I've created two 10-minute meditations, one for the morning to help you start your day vitalized and with a clear mind, then an evening meditation to help you have a calm and restful sleep. You can find these three meditations on my website at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Western countries invest billions in healthcare, yet chronic diseases and mental illness are on a seemingly unstoppable rise. So what is normal when it comes to health? To answer this question, I welcome to a life of greatness for the second time, physician and addiction expert, Dr. Garbal Maté. Dr. Maté connects the dots between our personal suffering and the pressures of modern day living, but with deep compassion, he also shows us a pathway to health and healing. Garbo teaches us that hope and heartbreak live so close, side by side, and through true connection with each other, that healing is possible. This conversation traverses many realms. We discuss raising children to thrive, nurture versus nature, and the effects of trauma on our body and mind. They ended up using the disease as a teacher. What does this disease manifest about my life? What processes in my life does disease represent? And what can I do in my life to affect that process? The biggest change was they transformed their relationship to themselves. And if you ask any of them, they'd never want to go back. They'd never want to go back to the person they were before they got sick. And in that sense, people actually express gratitude for their illness. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Dr. Garbal Maté is the author of many New York Times bestselling books, including In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts and his newest book written with his son Daniel, The Myth of Normal. In its essence, this conversation is about understanding trauma, accepting pain, working through it, and how suffering is integral to the human experience. When you interview a guest for the second time, you not only believe strongly in their work, but you build a connection with them. Gabor, I can say, is one of the most genuine, compassionate, intelligent people I have had the pleasure of talking with. My hope is that Garbo's words ignite the inner change you seek most and guides you to reimagine what it means to be truly free of the shackles of our past and in the process, what it means to be human. Garbo Mate, firstly, how are you? Welcome to the podcast for the second time. Nice to be back. Thank you. We always start in the beginning at my podcast, the beginning of people's lives, and I know for you, you were a Holocaust survivor and you talk about the trauma that you had as an infant, a baby. And I want you to talk to that in regards to an experience that you had at a plant ceremony. Well, it's part of a chapter in my new book, The Myth of Normal. What transpired was that I went to Peru to lead a retreat for health caregivers, doctors, psychologists, counselors, psychiatrists, and so on. And I worked with the plant ayahuasca for year, uh, for many years, and I lead the retreats in the sense that I help people formulate their intentions, and and after the ceremony, help them interpret their visions, their feelings, their experiences, and to help them integrate them into their lives. But I don't lead the ceremonies. The ceremonies are led by uh, shamans, and in this case, in the Amazon rainforest, the ceremonies were led by Shipibo native maestros and maestros, three women and three men. And we had the first ceremony after the first day. And in the morning, the shamans sent a delegation to me to say, uh, we can't have you in ceremony because you're too dark and dense an energy about you, which infects the other people as well, which makes the work 
two darn things. So basically, they fired me from my own retreat <laughs> in the in the Amazon jungle, and they said to me, "Look, there's two issues that we sense with you, and what you have to keep in mind is that these people didn't know who I was. I mean, they, they had no reason to be impressed. They didn't know I was an author or what I'd written or anything with my personal history. But they said, number one." We think you've worked with a lot of traumatized people and you've absorbed their traumas and you haven't cleared them out of yourself. And secondly, they said, we think when you were very young, you had a very big scare in your life and you haven't got over it yet. And that goes back to my infancy and as a Jewish infant under the Nazis, about which they knew nothing whatsoever. They just picked apart it energetically as they chanted to me. And basically, they fired me from my retreat. I didn't lead the retreat. And one of them worked with me for 10 days over five ceremonies to heal whatever they perceived needed healing in me. That's the story. Doing all the work that you have, obviously on trauma, and you've written many books, and as you mentioned, your newest book, which is The Myth of Normal, did you feel that you had cleared a lot of what had happened in your childhood? Were you shocked when they said that? You know, uh, no. My ego was, but I wasn't. My ego didn't like being shunted aside, but I knew they were right. I mean, I, I just knew it right away. And accepted it and accepted it with pretty good grace. I pushed back a bit, but not much. And I wonder, working with people that had experienced trauma for all those years, doctors talk about this separation that they have between the patient and themselves. Yeah. But as if really that can't get muddled, doesn't matter what sort of training you've had. I've spoken to enough doctors, first respondents, people who are trained in that medical field. But when you see shocking case after shocking case, yes, you suppress your emotions, but I feel that things still seep in. Well, the reality is that that many doctors are traumatized to start with. I mean, even before they start medical school. Part of the drive to get through medical school, and I can certainly speak for myself, part of the drive to become important and authoritative and respected is because you're lacking those qualities of groundedness and self-acceptance internally. In other words, you've been traumatized. And so medical school is one way to compensate and, and, and the position of being a doctor. I mean, there's some genuine humanitarian impulses involved in becoming a doctor as well. It's not one or thing or the other, but there's often also there a desire to be validated and to be essential in people's lives, which drive itself is a trauma response. That's the first point. Second point is doctors go through very rigorous and I might say sometimes brutal training and um, the sleeplessness and the responsibilities, the shaming, the authoritarian leaders that you have to subject yourself to. It's often very traumatic. And nothing in our training prepares us to take care of ourselves. In fact, even the admission that we need taken care of is seen as a weakness. So these are the people that then furthermore, nothing, in, as I pointed in this book, nothing in medical education teaches us about trauma, nothing, it's absolutely lacking. So despite the fact that many of the conditions we see, chronic illnesses, autoimmune diseases, mental health conditions, addictions, are rooted in trauma. Most physicians are not even aware of the science showing those links, so therefore, they're dealing with trauma without even realizing that that's what they're dealing with. Yeah. And so there's our own stuff that we're in denial of, there's the stuff of our patients that we're not aware of, but as you say, it all seeps in. And nothing in our training prepares us to clear it out of ourselves. During that ceremony, what happened after that? Because then they took you to the side and you had a man that was with you and and you kind of had this one-on-one time with him. What happened after that? So this one maestro, this one shaman worked with me over 10 days, which included five ceremonies, the ceremony every second night. The rest of the time I was sequestered on my own. I walked the rainforest, I meditated, I read my spiritual books, did my yoga. And every second night he'd have a ceremony where I was the only client. And he would chant and he would work on my body energetically and he would pray over me. And 
Each time I felt myself a little bit lighter, a little bit more clear, no great visions, but just more clarity and more calm and more inner peace until the last ceremony when I thought it was all over and I was sitting there feeling quite good about myself and at ease in my body and we were just sitting there talking, the shaman, the translator and myself and all of a sudden I found myself thrown to the ground and this big vision came in which lasted, they tell me, about two hours. It was powerful and it was liberating and healing. The details of it are in the book and I don't really want to talk about it publicly but it was this breakthrough experience for me that had a lot to do with healing my childhood trauma, which is what he had set out to do in the first place. As a Jewish person, and Melbourne, where I'm from in Australia, has the most Holocaust survivors out of any place in the world. And I've interviewed a Holocaust survivor. My grandpa was in the Holocaust. Mm. He's gone now. It is our community. I've heard all the stories firsthand. And then you hear about epigenetics and how it's passed down and that trauma never leaves I wonder now, knowing what you do, Gabor, for people, definitely you don't have to be a child of a Holocaust survivor or a granddaughter of no. a Holocaust survivor or anything. There is plenty of different traumas, but we'll take the Holocaust survivor because that is your background. How do you heal from that? I kind of push back against the Holocaust survivor focus. Yeah. Because it's so dramatic and it's so out of the ordinary that people tend to think that trauma has to be identified with something really so outrageous and so cruel. You know, that's not the case. Before the Nazis occupied Hungary, and before my family came under threat, I was lying in hospital at two weeks of age with my mother, still in the maternity hospital. And my mother writes in her diary, my poor little Gabor, my heart is breaking for you because you've been crying for a year and a half, asking to be fed, but it's not time yet. Because I promised the doctor I would only feed you on a four-hour schedule. And still another an hour and a half to go. So there she was. Her mother, maternal instinct, was screaming for her to pick me up. But she had resolved to follow medical advice. Really dumb-headed medical advice. And she ignored my cries for over an hour and a half. Well, that's traumatizing. You don't need a Holocaust. You just need an infant whose needs are not responded to. And that happens all the time in our culture these days. So, yeah. My experiences as a Jewish infant under the Nazis, certainly they were daunting to say the least and separation from my mother. They all left their mark. But it didn't take all that. It just needed a mother who was sufficiently out of touch with her own instincts to follow the absolutely wrong-headed advice of some health professional. And that happens a lot to parents these days. Parents are told a lot these days to the kids crying, to let them sleep it out, to, to separate from kids, give them time out when they don't like their behavior. Do you know any other animal besides human beings who ignore their instincts? No, I don't. Well, that's because nature doesn't intend us to ignore our instincts. Mm. We're meant to follow them. And so any denial of our instincts leads to, I'm, I'm not talking about emotions, and there's lots of emotions for all kinds of reasons, but instincts, they're there for a reason. Evolution has prepared us to follow them in order to fulfill the evolutionary plan of human development. Yes. And so um, that's always damaging to the parent and it's always damaging to the child. No, you did it a couple of times, it's not at the end of the world. Besides, the more you do it, the more you lose contact with your own instincts. Mm. And that means you're parenting, not from instinct anymore, but from ideas. Yes. What I'm addressing in this book is the cultural tendency for people to ignore their instincts and to not to meet the children's needs and the impact that it has on child development and personality patterns and behaviors and how it leads to ill health. You know, so I'm looking at the cultural context in which generations of parents are advised to ignore their instincts. And so what would be the ideal advice that someone like you would give to a person that is a new parent or is thinking about having kids or even as a parent now? Ask yourself, what are your intentions? You yeah. know, a lot of parents have the intention of, I want my kid to be this way or that way or, and to behave this way or that way. But nature doesn't care about that. Nature is giving the child certain needs. The essential question for parents has to be, what are the child's irreducible needs? Now, 
every animal entering the world has certain needs that if the environment doesn't provide, that animal will not develop well or will not survive well. That's how we're programmed by evolution. So baby birds have certain needs. The parents don't meet the needs. Those baby birds don't thrive. Human children are born with needs, with more complex needs. I mean, emotional caring and support is essential for all mammals, all mammalian parents, um, uh, bears and whales and lions and elephants. They provide not just physical nourishing and protection, but emotional support to their young. And they share many of the same emotions, by the way, that we have as human beings. But the emotional needs of human children are more complex. They include unconditional loving acceptance in a very secure attachment relationship. Mm. They include the child not having to work to make the relationship work. The child doesn't have to take on the parent's stresses. The child doesn't have to worry about the parent. The child doesn't have to be good, pretty, successful, smart, accomplished in order to be accepted, compliant. The child needs to be able to feel all their emotions, their grief, their anger, their pain, their joy, their love, their playfulness, everything. That's an essential need of the human child for healthy development. These are some of the essential needs. So to answer your question, parents need to start off with what are the needs of the child and how do I best meet them? Not what do I want the kid to be, Yeah. but what are the needs of the child for healthy development and how do I meet those needs? What do I need to do in my life to meet those needs? And one thing that you mentioned is not take on the parent's stuff because I see a lot of children and I see the reflection of their suffering in their parents. To me, it's obvious. I can see the neuroses of them have come from their parents and their parents have no idea. They're like, I don't understand why my child's like this. But it's this unconscious cycle that's then passed on from one to the next to the next. It's a really interesting thing. It makes sense that you bring it up. As I describe in this book and I've talked about elsewhere, I certainly passed on my traumas to my children without meaning to and without being you know, aware, even aware that I was doing so. And that's what happens multi-generationally if, the, if you're not aware and if you don't work it through before you have children. So another bit of advice to parents is really work on your stuff. Not, don't, be per- don't expect to work it all out and be perfect. I mean, forget that. But be aware. So that all the more reasons since when we marry and form a relationship we all always find somebody exactly at the same level of woundedness as we are. That means, and that means that a couple will always trigger each other's wounds. Mm. And the, the tendency is to think is that other person who's triggering me is their fault, but actually, I'm the one who's getting triggered. I'm the one who's carrying that explosive material that's being set off. And so, parents need to work on their stuff continually in order not to pass it on to their kids. Can you talk a bit about what happened with you passing on your trauma to your kids, how that manifested and came out? Well, my co-writer in this book, my son Daniel, who's now 47, and he talks in this book about a nightmare he used to have as a child of the floor disappearing from beneath his feet, which was a metaphor for the sudden shifts of emotional tone in our marriage so that we could be very loving and playful and peaceful one moment. But because of our unresolved stuff, our tensions and conflicts could break out at any moment, which creates a situation of emotional unsafety for the child. And so the floor was never the floor. It was never stable. And that is an impact on the child. So as in you and your wife used to fight... We would fight and we would have tensions and hostilities emotionally and just to be a coldness and a lack of warmth. Kids are very sensitive to that. I mean, you can measure, you can measure the degree of a parent's conflict by measuring the child's stress hormone levels. Really? So the child's physiology is affected by the parent's emotions. It's that simple. Hmm. That's so interesting. And Gabor, as we mentioned, you've got this amazing new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. 
Can you explain to us what normal is? Yeah. So in in a medical sense, normal is equatable, equal, equal to healthy and natural. So there's a normal range of temperature. If your temperature is higher or lower than normal, you are sick. And if it's very high or normal or, or, or lower than normal, you die. Your blood pressure is within a normal range. That equates with healthy and natural. But if your blood pressure goes way below the normal or way above the normal, you die. So norm in that sense means healthy and natural. However, norm has another sense, which is just what you'd be used to, what is usual, what is customary. And in our society, and we tend to conflate the two, we tend to think that what is usual and customary is also healthy and natural. But in our society, I'm arguing that what we expect to be normal is neither healthy nor natural. In fact, the norm makes us sick, is what I'm arguing both physically and emotionally and mentally. There's a stat that you use in the book where 70% of Americans are on prescription medication. 70% of adults, yeah. That is such a huge number. And when we talk about normal, you think that 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 becomes normal. That's the point. And even I've just seen here in Australia, just even in my own circles, there is such a huge amount of people that are on antidepressants or some sort of anti-anxiety medication and I wonder, yeah. Garbo, when did that become normal? Since the 1970s, it's been increasing for a whole lot of reasons. But the real question is what is driving it? Why are so many people yes. having to soothe their brains with biological agents? And uh, that's what I mean about the toxicity of the culture. It's creating these conditions that, to coin a phrase, is driving people crazy, L- let alone the... Um, medication of children. There was an article in the New York Times six weeks ago now. There's a front page article in the Times. This teenager being on 10 different psychiatric medications. 10 different psychiatric medications. And that's not unusual in the States. And so many more kids all over the world are being diagnosed with anxiety, depression, self-cutting. Uh, suicidality is rising, particularly in the United States, among children. The number of kids taking medications for ADHD and depression, anxiety, and all kinds of other conditions is increasing rapidly. Well, something's going on. And that's my sense. This is a, as I'm saying, this is a toxic culture. This culture makes people unbalanced, unhappy, anxious for all kinds of reasons. And then instead of dealing with the conditions that create those distressed mental states in people, we just try to mitigate the effects through pharmacology. I mean, 100 years from now, they're not going to believe that we live this way. They're I know. not going to believe it. I mean, even now seeing this rise of ADHD and then this huge amount of older women who are being diagnosed with it, why is that suddenly coming out? In It's like every second celebrity now has ADHD. Well, it's what's happening in the culture to drive this. Yeah, I mean, my first book was about ADHD. It's called Scattered Minds after I was diagnosed with it myself. If you look at what that mind scattering is all about, that tuning out is all about, we humans have this capacity to tune out. But why would nature give us that capacity? Mm. Because it's an essential coping mechanism. When people are vulnerable and very stressed and helpless, the mind deals with it by tuning out so so as the suffering is diminished. The real question is, why is there so much more stress and suffering in a society that more children, when their brains are developing, are having to tune out. And that's got nothing to do with parental love or lack of devotion. It has to do with stress on the parents. So the more stress is on the parents, even in the uterus. A pregnant woman carrying an infant, the more stressed she is, the more likely that kid will be diagnosed with ADHD later on. And when, when mothers are depressed or stressed in the child's early years, as my mother was in the conditions of the war, um, how does the infant deal with that? By tuning out. This is when the brain is being programmed. So I think that the rise of ADHD amongst children and people in general is owing to the rise of stress in this culture. Mm. Now, it's also true that as a result of all that, we become more aware, so people are probably being diagnosed more often than they might have been otherwise. 
perhaps they're also being diagnosed too often sometimes, but there's no question that the general rate of emotional distress and therefore the tuning out, which is a response to that stress, is increasing. It's cultural. It's not genetic. It has to do with brain, but the brain develops under the impact of the environment. And so what we're looking at is a culturally manufactured coping mechanism wired into the brain that later on becomes a source of distress. When we talk about the environment, and I know that you speak a lot about this uh, as far as epigenetics go, and we talk yeah. about disease and the fact also that as far as genetics go, it's not always that you have the gene and it will be turned on. It very yeah. much is to do a lot of the time with the environment and, and the stress yeah. in the environment, the way that you interpret your environment. I've talked yeah. at length with Bruce Lipton on a couple of occasions about this stuff. Yeah. In your new book, you speak a lot about case studies of people that have these terminal illnesses. And I want to read a part in your book. It says, this is speaking about people that had so-called incurable diseases that suddenly did heal. You could call them spontaneous remissions as we do. Healing, not cure, is the blessing that disease bestowed on these people. Cure can never be guaranteed. Healing is another matter, and it is available until we draw our last breath. And from the work that you've done, and you talk about a guy called Jeffrey Rediger in the book, who I've interviewed as well on this podcast. He's phenomenal. Yeah. And he has done a lot of work with spontaneous remissions. What correlation do you see between healing from cancer and all these other diseases a lot who are told that they are really aggressive and they won't heal, that they suddenly do? Well, so I called Jeff Rediger in my book. I I talked to him when I was writing it. And both he and I and other people who studied these so-called spontaneous remissions, we realized there's nothing spontaneous about no. them. They, they, they don't just happen out of the blue. They actually happen for a reason. That reason has to do with the mind-body unity. So if we realize that people's emotional lives and traumas and stresses have a lot to do with their physical illnesses, which according to all the research, they do, it also means that if you change your emotional life and your relationship to yourself, there's a potential for a different outcome. Yes. Now, I'm not selling snake oil here. There's nothing to guarantee. There's no promise of a cure here. But what Jeff did find, and by the way, I was talking to Jeff just as I was writing the book, and despite the scientifically demonstrated mind-body unity, he told me that to talk about mind-body medicine at Harvard is still to jeopardize your career. Yeah. He says that's changing, but it's very difficult. Now, this is after decades and decades and decades of research linking stress, trauma, emotional states to chronic illness. The, the medical resistance is unbelievable. It is unbelievable, and I think science is phenomenal and what it has done and the medicine that it has given us for certain things is just phenomenal. But to not think that the mind is also associated with disease, I mean, how can you not think there's a correlation between that? It's a suffering, anger, trauma, resentment, jealousy, all of these emotions if you hold on to them long enough, of course they're going to manifest into disease if, you, if they're never dealt with. Or if you suppress the unhealthy yeah. anger that's there. Yes. No, you mentioned science, but here's the point. This is science. This isn't intuition. Yeah. Purely. This is documented decades old, more than 100 years old, research-oriented, published in major journals, scientific stuff. And so my... Frustration with my own profession here, the medical profession, is not that we're scientific. It's that we're not scientific enough. Mm. We sort of pick and choose, be cherry pick the science that we're going to look at. And the science of mind-body unity, which is not even vaguely controversial from a documented research point of view, is just not taught in the medical schools. That's what's so interesting here. But to come back to Radiger and myself, we both found that the people who do find healing are the ones who 
deal with their stresses and their traumas and who have a transformed relationship with themselves. And actually what they did, they ended up using the disease as a teacher. Uh, what does this disease manifest about my life? What processes in my life does disease represent? And what can I do in my life to affect that process? Mm. That's what all these people, whether they did supplements or yoga or meditation or walking in nature or spiritual pursuits, changes of diet, new forms of exercise. The biggest change was they transformed their relationship to themselves. And if you if you ask any of them, they'd never want to go back. They'd never want to go back to the person they were before they got sick. Yes. And in that sense, people actually express gratitude for their illness. Now, I don't recommend that way of learning. <laughs> One of the reasons I wrote the book is that people will wake up before the body forces them to. But nevertheless, those people that have gone that route, they have found tremendous learning and transformation in absorbing the lessons of their journey with illness. In the book, you talk about these four A's, the healing principles, some of them, authenticity, agency, anger, acceptance. They're all so important, but can we talk about authenticity for a moment? Sure. Because as you have done all this study, I have too, and you are a palliative care worker. I've spoken to enough yeah. palliative care workers for them to all say that when people are on their deathbed, one of the biggest things that they say when they regret something is, I didn't feel like I lived a life true to myself. What have you learned about living a life of authenticity and how important that is for your health? Well, first of all, I used to have the experience, not infrequently in palliative care, that somebody dying would say to me, Doc, I don't know quite how to explain this, but this disease that's going to take my life in a day or three days or a week is the best thing that ever happened to me. And you think, what the heck are they talking about? And what they're talking about is, that through the disease, they reconnected with their authentic selves that they lost touch with a long time before. And they were so grateful for that. Now, again, I don't recommend going that route, but I'm just uh, I'm just reporting what I observed. Now, authenticity. Well, let's just let me ask you a question, okay? Um, have you ever had the experience of having a strong gut feeling about something and you ignored it and you felt regretful afterwards? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, yeah, well, that gut feeling is your authentic self. Yeah. In fact, how long does any creature in nature survive if they're not in touch with their gut feelings? Mm, not very long. They don't. No. So when I talk about authenticity, I'm talking about auto, the self, being in touch with the, the body and with the gut feelings, with, with, with the authentic emotions. That's the authentic self. And to be able to act from it. That's why when I talked about the essential needs of children, one of them was the freedom to experience all the emotions. Mm -hmm. Now, you've been a mother, you are a mother. Have you ever met a one-day-old baby not in touch with their gut feelings? No. Okay. Therefore, what ha something happened to you, as happens to virtually all of us, is between the time we were born, completely connected to our, bo connected to our bodies and our gut feelings, something happens that teaches us that we better not. Now, what could that be? It has to be something very powerful. Otherwise, we wouldn't drop our connection to our gut feelings. That powerful thing that forbids us from being remaining connected to ourselves is our need to fit in with the expectations of our families and our societies. And if the family environment, the parenting environment, not because the parents are not doing their best, not because they don't love you, just because they're out of alignment with themselves. Yes. If the parenting environment, let alone if you're abused and so on, but if the parenting environment demands that for to be accepted, you better not be angry. You better be compliant. You know, sugar and spice. Then you're going to suppress your gut feelings because you ha you need that attachment relationship. Mm. You can't live without it. So there's this tragic tension, which we call in the book, between attachment and authenticity. The child. So I got this dilemma. If I'm myself, they won't accept me. 
if I want to be accepted, I can't be myself. Well, the child has no choice in the matter. And therefore, when I ask somebody decades later, have you had the experience of ignoring gut feeling and being sorry, they say, oh, yes, I have. Now, if people do that chronically, which some people do, depending on the nature of their childhood, that makes them physically ill. Wow. And mentally ill. So it's not a minor issue. There's a story that you tell in the book, which is such a fleeting thing, but it really demonstrates this point of when you came home from a speaking engagement and your wife yeah. was supposed to pick you up from the airport. Yeah, that opens the first chapter and it really speaks to Anil trauma because this wasn't long ago. I mean, it was, it was when I was 70 years, I think, Yeah, and old and I arrived at the airport and expecting Ray, my wife, to be there and instead I get a text saying I haven't left home yet. So I take a taxi home but I'm enraged and I'm hurt. What that's about, that's a triggering of an old wound of being abandoned by my mother. And when I say abandoned, being given to a stranger in order to save my life under the conditions of Nazi-occupied Hungary towards the end of the Second World War. So that act that my mother committed at age 24, can you imagine? My mother giving her baby to a stranger in the street, that act of bravery and incredible act of love was interpreted by me the only way I could interpret it is abandonment. And who gets abandoned? Somebody who's not lovable. Somebody who's not wanted. And so that's the trauma. Trauma is not what happens to us. Trauma is not that my mother gave me to a stranger. Trauma is what happens inside of us. And what happens inside me is unconsciously, but inevitably, I conclude that I'm being abandoned. I'm not lovable. Mm. And seven years later, when this woman on whom I'm relying for support and connection um, doesn't show up to pick me up at the airport, I react exactly like a baby. When I saw my mother again, I didn't even look at her for several days, which is typical of young children separated from parents. And so when I got home, I didn't even look at my wife. In other words, I was acting like a baby. So when people say to me, don't be such a baby, they're being 100% accurate. Because mm. that's the reaction of the baby. But that's the old wound yes. that's still stamped in my brain. And I'm reacting as if I'm still that dependent child, which is what my friend Peter Levine calls the tyranny of the past. So the essence of trauma is that it's not what happens to you, it's what happens inside you. It's how you interpret things and what those interpretations cause you to act out later on in life. That's what the trauma is. And that's what Peter calls the tyranny of the past. Mm. You obviously acknowledge that because you've written it in your book and it, it, it's a great story to highlight what we're talking about. Then how do you stop that from happening the next time? Maybe not that exact instance, but something that's similar to that. How do you heal from that? What will never change is the original story. I mean, I'll never not have been given away by my mother. Yes. That's not going to change. What I make it mean may change. So one of my experiences in Peru at that ceremony that you began your questioning with is that I really got that what happened to me then doesn't have to define how I see the world now. Yeah. And on a more practical level, since not everybody's going to get to Peru to work with shamans, not that they need to. When I get those emotions arising in me, I can notice them. I can say, oh, hello, here you are. But you're not representing my present, and I don't have to act as if I was still a one-year-old. So the, you gain a separation between emotional hmm, resonance and how you respond. That gap between stimulus and response is, Rollo May, the great yes. psychologist, is, is where our freedom is. Yes, yes, I've so, heard that. As you heal, you gain more freedom. You, you, there's more of a gap between what happens and your response. And in that response, you can choose. In that gap, I mean, you can choose how you're going to respond. So you might say, okay, I'm disappointed that my wife Ray is not here, but I can handle the disappointment. Anyway, I know she's an artist. She's stuck in the studio. I mean, she's in the flow of painting. There's no husband. There's nothing. 
It's just the creation of art. And I've only known that for 50 years. So why should I be upset about it? Yeah. You say that trauma dictates the way we perceive the world. It's not what happened to you. It's what happens inside of you. Yeah. And when you can understand that, you can, you can start to heal. It's interesting because it made me think about the way that we all perceive things so differently. The way you mm-hmm. perceive a situation can be completely different to the way that I interpret the situation. We can have the same experience, yet we can walk away with different interpretations yeah. of that. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier on, there is little T trauma and big T traumas. You don't have to have been in the Holocaust or sexually abused as a child to experience trauma. There are those little traumas, like you mentioned. And you can wound people in all kinds of ways. Yes. It doesn't have to be horrific things. And I wonder if we can just talk about that, that perception of the way that we view things. I mean, how can yeah. one change that if you have had some sort of trauma in your life? Well, I, I quote somebody in the book, John Chilton Pierce, who said that a change of worldview can change the world being viewed. Mm. It reminds me of that Wayne Dyer quote. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the same concept, isn't yeah. it? For that to happen, most people have to bump their head against the wall a few times. After they realize that there's a wall there, and it hurts when you bump your head against it. So generally something happens. You might have a relationship breakup. Or you might have several relationship breakups. And in the beginning, your tendency will be to... Well, most people's tendency will be to, oh, I, this is the wrong person I was with, and it's, you know, if, if I was, it was with the right person, this wouldn't happen. But then the same thing is happening. At some point, you start to realize, oh, it's maybe the way I'm looking at things and the way I go about choosing partners that creates the problem here. Or you might have a depression or, or a bout of anxiety, and then you have to start asking, well, okay, what is depression? Hmm. That's when I push my feelings down. That's what it means to depress, by the way, is to push something down. When did I begin to push my feelings down? Oh, I did that in childhood because to express my feelings was to um, evoke rejection. Well, then you start looking at it and, okay, do I have to still have to keep repressing my feelings? Is that good for me? Um, or you might get a physical illness, and we already talked about it. A physical illnesses can serve as a wake-up call. So usually something has to happen. First, to begin to question what you accepted as norm and to realize that what you accepted as norm is not healthy for us, it's not natural, and it can be different. Mm. What's been your greatest awakening? You know, I don't know that I can... I'm kind of a slow learner, you know, Sarah. So it's, it's not like... <laughs> so I have a pretty thick skull here. It's not that I've had any sort of sudden illuminations. It's been an ongoing process. I would say largely to do with my relationship with my wife. We had such conflicts and we loved each other so much. And we're both so committed to the truth that we just have to keep working on it. Mm. It was true here. What's true became more important than who's right. And that's been an ongoing, gradual healing of the layers of the onion. Now, I've had other healing experiences, of course, but I'd say that's been the most important area where my growth has taken place. How's your relationship now? Well, you can read the dedication to the book. It's wonderful, actually. When do you think your faith has been most tested? It's not like I've had faith. I, I, I live most of my life rather faithlessly. So you might say all my life, because given what happened to me as an infant, and given what happened to my grandparents, and just in the world in general, this whole idea that there was an omnipotent, omniscient, and all-benign God never made sense to me. Mm. If God was all-powerful, then he either couldn't know everything, or he wasn't any good, was he? Otherwise, these things wouldn't happen. If God was all-powerful and all-good, then he was blind. If God was is everything and was good, then he was powerless, because otherwise I'd have let it happen. So that kind of God never made sense to me. And 
It's not so much that my faith was tested. It's that my faith had to develop. Mm. That in fact, we do live in a benign universe. The intuitional intent of the universe being, and I'm talking about some conscious entity, but there's a benignness in the universe. There's certain laws. There's certain parameters, which if we follow, we're pursuing a path of health and belonging. And if we go against them, we create suffering for ourselves and for the people. So the faith developed over time. Where now, I still don't believe in an entity that sits up there and makes decisions. Mm. But I do think that there's a unity that does have benign essence to it. Yes. That's the closest I can put it. I can't convince anybody of that. Know what I want to. What's the best advice that you have ever been given? It was given to me when I was long before I was willing to receive it. And it has to do with authenticity. I had an aunt who came back from Auschwitz. And she was uh, she was 80 pounds when she came back. And uh, she was an ophthalmologist, a great one. And she just loved me so much. And when I was 20 or 21, she wrote me a letter. And she quoted Shakespeare from Hamlet, where Polonius says, To thine own self be true. I didn't know what the heck she was talking about. She was talking about authenticity. But I I was so out of sync with my true self, I couldn't even appreciate what she was saying or why she was saying it to me. But she saw how inauthentic I was being. Mm. And she said, you know what? You know what God says to Abraham in, in the Bible? He says, Lech lecha, go to yourself. That's the best advice anybody can give anybody else. Go to yourself. Mm. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Well, still learning it. Not to identify myself with what I do or how I'm seen in the world and what I achieve or what I don't achieve. Mm. And these days, that's been tested in a good sense because I get a lot of listening in the world. A lot of people want to hear what I have to say. My books are bestsellers internationally. And so I get a lot of positive feedback. And it's a little bit too easy to identify with that. I have to actually mistake that for who I am. I'm not any of that stuff. Just another being starting to be themselves and to be at peace in the world. Fortunately, I am married to somebody who will remind me about uh, the Roman emperors. It is said, as, as the Roman emperor would go through Rome on a triumphant parade, there'd be a slave standing on the chariot next to him. And as there was waving and cheering and all the hosannas, the slave would whisper into the emperor's ear, Sir, you're mortal. I love that. So, so we all need this voice inside of ourselves. That says, sir, madam, so-and-so, you're immortal. You know, there's not to buy into any of this external stuff. Yes. That's the biggest challenge. That's the biggest challenge. And that's also true when things are going badly. Yes. When I'm depressed or not feeling good or something I do isn't succeeded, I also have to say, this isn't me either. So when I was writing the book, I had a really hard time writing it. I went through a fair degree of panic because I was too identified with it. If the writing wasn't going well, then I wasn't doing well. That wasn't true. Mm. This book could have been a major failure and it would say nothing about me as a human being. Mm. You know, so not to identify with the externals. That's the biggest challenge. It's a whole an, an ego thing, how you can tame that ego and know that you're still exactly the same person as you were before yeah. the external success and people that, unfortunately, that it, it does affect. You see that also that rise from fame can drop fast too, so that can be hard if you're identifying only with your external. Yeah. yeah. Well, it takes, I think, two things. One is a willingness internally to be really questioning yourself all the time. Yes. Not to undermine yourself, but to get to know yourself, self-awareness. And it, it helps to have people in your life who keep you honest. Do you have... A favorite saying or prayer? I do. Want me to read it to you? Oh, I'd love you to. My cell phone is a, it's an absolute compendium of beautiful quotes because 
Every time I see something wonderful, I, I want to write it. Yes, I, I, I love, it to love a good quote. You have a lot so, of good ones in your book. Yeah, and this one actually, part of this shows up in the book as well. But I'll read you the whole thing. Please and do. This is by the uh, poet Rainer Meyer Rilke in his book, Letters to a Young Poet. This is my all-time favorite quote. Do not allow yourself to be confused in your aloneness by the something within you that wishes to be released from it. This very wish, if you will calmly and deliberately use it as a tool, will help to expand your solitude into far distant realms. People have, with the help of so many conventions, resolved everything the easy way, on the easiest side of the easy. But it is clear that we must embrace struggle. Every living thing conforms to it. This is my favorite part. Everything in nature grows and struggles in its own way, establishing its own identity, insisting on it at all costs, against all resistance. We can be sure very little, but the need to court struggle is a surety that will not leave us. It is good to be lonely, for being alone is not easy. The fact that something is difficult must be one more reason to do it. And what he's saying is, be authentic for God's sakes. And if that makes you alone, be alone and authentic rather than to belong and be inauthentic. Oh, That's the essence of it. It is the essence of it, isn't it? That is very beautiful. What is a life of greatness to you? It's authenticity. And whether authenticity, as you're living alone in a, in a tent, nobody ever hears of you. But if you're authentic, that's a great life. And you could be at the pinnacle of success and have the adulation of millions and be totally miserable life if it's not authentic. And we see this all the time. Gabor Mate, thank you for everything you do. All your books are phenomenal. You give so much to this world as far as service is concerned and really we're truly grateful for that. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you again. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.